said here he was going to compose a piece called Asturias Leyenda. Hmm, okay, here's this piece, Preludio. So let's take that and put it in the Suite Española and call it Asturias Leyenda. And from that time forward, it's been known as Asturias Leyenda. Anybody who's ever heard Asturian folklore knows that this has nothing to do. I've heard people explain it. Well, the Asturias is a mountainous, rugged region in the north, and you can hear the suggestions of this rugged, mountainous region and the, the rhythms of the piece. Oh, baloney, that's just a crock of nonsense. There was a time when almost all musicologists were keyboard players. Guitarists might be accepted if they played the lute, maybe the biwela, or maybe the baroque guitar. But someone like me with a, a background in the conventional modern classical guitar and with an interest in flamenco and so on, 40 years ago, that just wouldn't have passed muster. That wouldn't have been acceptable. But I came along at just the right time when musicology was opening up to new, new repertoires, new approaches, new ideas. And as a consequence, it was possible for me to write about a, a rather unconventional subject and get away with it. Not only get away with it, but actually be hired because of it. Uh, you're gradually giving up on being the next John Williams or the next Pepe Romero, <laughs> who doesn't give up on that sooner or later, then um, come on in, the water's fine. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. Hey, if you've been enjoying the show, please take a second to go rate it on iTunes, like on Facebook, or follow on Twitter at All Strings. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. The GFA International Convention and Competition is coming up. It will take place this year from June 25th to 30th in Louisville, Kentucky, featuring guest artists like Zoran Dukic, Marcin Dila, Elliot Fisk, Berta Rojas, and a whole bunch more. For more information, visit the GFA website at guitarfoundation.org. Also, the CSU Summer Arts Guitar Course will be taking place this July, 1st through the 15th, in beautiful Monterey, California. This is a two-week-long event, includes daily masterclasses, concerts, group lessons, ensemble music, and all with artists like Elliot Fisk, Andrew York, Scott Tennant, William Canengeiser, uh, some flamenco guitar with Kai Nareso, Benjamin Verdery, Scott Morris, and many others. Scholarships and financial aid are still available. The deadline for applying for those is May 3rd. You can go to csusummerarts.org. Uh, hopefully I'll see you there. So some of you want music as part of your primary focus in your career, and you probably want it to be guitar-related. But you might be searching for alternatives to being a touring concert artist, or a teacher. Writing about music and music history might be the way to go. I spoke with someone this week who has found a way to maintain that connection with the guitar world by writing on many of the guitar world's most beloved composers like Albéniz, Torroba, Tárrega, and Sor. 
please let me introduce you to Dr. Walter Aaron Clark. Dr. Clark is the founder and director of the Center for Iberian and Latin American Music at the University of California, Riverside, where he is currently faculty. Walter also is an accomplished guitarist as he holds bachelor's and master's degree in classical guitar, and his master's was earned studying with the fantastic Pepe Romero. Clark is also a Fulbright scholar. He's written all sorts of books and articles on all our favorites, most recently Torroba and Abenis. And my most recent experience with his scholarship has been his co-authoring of a textbook on Latin American music, which I just started using in my classes and I'm really enjoying. On the show today, Dr. Clark will discuss being one of the few guitar-related musicologists. We'll hear a bit of interesting history about one of the pieces we hold most dear, Albanese's Asturias Leyenda. And for those of you who are in love with Spanish music, but a little tired of the same old arrangements, Walter also gives us some suggestions for new transcriptions and arrangements. a secret to some of your older listeners, but there was a time when almost all musicologists were keyboard players. Because most musicologists specialized in music of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But I came along at just the right time when musicology was opening up to new repertoires, new approaches, new ideas. And as a consequence, it was possible for me to write about a, a rather unconventional subject and get away with it. Not only get away with it, but actually be hired because of it. And that situation has only improved over time, and I'm very happy about that. So what caused uh, this change? Well, a new generation of musicologists decided that musicology had gotten just a little bit too complacent, self-satisfied, and frankly, downright stuffy. All these people with their medieval and Renaissance music didn't seem to be sufficiently open to other possibilities. This renaissance, you might say, began in the, around 1990 and has continued to the present day where it suddenly became okay to study music of American composers, that is to say United States composers or Canadian composers or Mexican composers or Argentinian composers or, <gasps> gasp, Spanish composers after Victoria. It was always okay to study Morales in Victoria. Spanish uh, polyphonists always had street cred, you know, credibility, because they were among the greatest figures of the Renaissance, and there was no denying that. No one would even try. So my advisor, Robert Stevenson, said that's where he started in the early 50s, was with uh, Cristobal de Morales, because the German musicologists who dominated the field at the time respected him. They respected Victoria. He didn't have to make a case for them. But it was that period after 1600 you know, where Spain sort of went into a gradual decline and lost its credibility as a, a great European power musically and otherwise. That's where it became problematic. And then, of course, Latin America was just off the radar of traditional musicology, as was the United States, for that matter. If they were going to allow anything post-Renaissance, it basically had to be Italian, maybe French, certainly German. But the peripheral countries, the Scandinavian countries, Eastern Europe, uh, the British Isles, and Iberia, oh, well, these were just not considered important enough to study. But as I say, that began to change in the 1990s, not only geographically, but in terms of gender. Let's uh, let women into the club. Uh, there have been great composers or important figures who happen to be female, and we could study not only the women composers, but issues of gender, issues of sexuality, 
issues of identity and race. These could all be studied. These are things that earlier musicologists didn't treat, but in the 1990s, they became mainstream. So I benefited from coming online, you might say, at a time when the discipline was opening up to a lot of new possibilities. And I remember conversations I had with my professors at UCLA. One was a member of this older school of musicologists, and he was a leading authority on the Italian Renaissance and a fantastic scholar. And I told him, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd like to write about Francisco Tarrega. But I just don't think I'd ever get a job. And he said to me, he said, you know, that might be true, but the tragedy is, if you don't do it, who will? And at that moment, I thought, damn it, I'm just going to put on my man pants and do what I feel passionate about and let the chips fall where they may. How about someone like Albanius? He wrote piano music that is justly celebrated and very well respected. And my advisor said without hesitation, he said, it's wide open, go for it, do it. He said, you couldn't have done this 20 years earlier, but you can do it now. And he was right. And they made all the difference. Little could I have suspected that before I even ha had finished my PhD, I had a contract with Oxford University Press for a book on Albanith. And I was off to the races. After Albanith, I did uh, Granados and then Taroba and a bunch of other stuff too. I branched out into Latin America because I could see that that was a, a burgeoning market and that there would be a demand for scholarship in that area. And besides, as a guitarist, we grow up playing Spanish music and Brazilian music and Mexican music. We don't think anything of it. It's just part of one large continuum. Uh, we don't ignore the distinctions and differences, but we don't break a sweat over crossing the Atlantic, musically speaking. So I branched out into Latin America and I've published a number of uh, books and articles on Latin American topics as well, and usually not pertaining to the guitar. I'm not... Uh, bound to the guitar, but clearly the guitar is the source of my inspiration. And so I would say to guitarists now, if uh, you're gradually giving up on being the next John Williams or the next Pepe Romero, and <laughs> who doesn't give up on that sooner or later, then um, come on in, the water's fine. For instance, at University of California, Riverside, where I'm a professor, I have a very talented and uh, promising doctoral student who's a guitarist and is going to write on a guitar-related topic for his dissertation. And I think that um, there is all kinds of uh, potential for publication and for getting a job in a way that was not the case 40 years ago, but times have changed. Being a guitarist now is, there's no stigma attached to being a guitarist, thank goodness. Even an electric guitarist, one of the uh, leading scholars today and a person who is making a real mark on our understanding of late 19th century Central European music, got his start as a, a rock guitarist. So <laughs> I knew a Mahler scholar years ago who also uh, had a real passion for rock and roll. And that's totally okay. And popular music is another area that's come into its own. If you want to do popular music, that's great. Although ethnomusicology might be methodologically uh, a more sympathetic area, but it depends, you know, the, the borderline between folk, popular, and classical, the, these, these boundaries are very permeable and very flexible. The basic thing is just figure out what your passion is. As well, Joseph Campbell used to talk about your bliss, your bliss station, what really motivates you, and then and do that, and do it really well, and everything else will take care of itself.
least it should. <laughs> Let's switch gears now in order to hear some of Walter's ideas on the interpretation and arrangement of works by Albanese. Don't you find it ironic that one of our most celebrated composers is a composer who never wrote anything for the guitar? I had written in my book, I think now rather infamously, that um, although a lot of Albanese's earlier works were transcribable for the guitar, and eminently so, because clearly Albanese had the guitar in mind, Iberia was just, there were just too many notes. It was too pianistic. It was almost impossible to play on the piano. Albanese himself almost destroyed some of the Iberia manuscripts because he himself couldn't play them. Late in life, he had lost a lot of his technique. He was no longer concertizing. He was in poor health and in a lot of pain. He had chronic inflammation of the kidneys, something called nephritis or Bright's disease. So he himself could hardly play these anymore. And he had written pieces that were at the outer limits of what you can do on a piano, you know, with 88 keys and 10 fingers. And he realized that it came close to destroying the the manuscripts. There was a very great Catalan pianist by the name of Joaquim Malatz. Everyone's familiar with his Serenate Española. Familiar with him perhaps as a composer, but he was best known in his own time as a phenomenal piano virtuoso. And Albanese actually composed Iberia for Joaquim Malatz, a Catalan pianist, because he, he said so in a letter, and also because Malatz was able to sight-read Iberia. As difficult as these pieces were, Malatz was actually able to sight-read Triana, which is almost unplayable. So. said, okay, I didn't make a mistake. These are actually playable, so I'll let them live. Fortunately, he did. But because of this, because they're barely executable on the piano with, with 10 fingers and 88 keys, I said rather brashly, rather boldly, that you simply can't transcribe these guitar pieces for single guitar. Yes, a guitar ensemble could execute them. And in fact, the Trio Campanella has uh, recorded Iberia and very beautifully. Those are terrific transcriptions. But I said a solo guitar simply cannot play these pieces because there are simply too many notes. But you have to be careful when you say something like that, when you throw down the gauntlet, because sooner or later somebody will prove you wrong. And I was very delighted when Javier sent me his recordings of selected numbers from Iberia that he had transcribed and recorded. And I have to say, I think they're terrific. I think he makes it happen. I think he pulls this off. But frankly, I, I'm still amazed when I, when I hear these performances because he not only gets the notes, he gets them very beautifully. He really brings out the essence of this music in a way that I think Obanith himself would have approved. So... This is uh, Albanese's great achievement in composition is Iberia. And there are four books of three pieces each, and this is in the first book. It's the second piece. It evokes the El Puerto is not just any port city. It, it happens to be the port near Cadiz. 
Uh, interestingly, that's the port from which Albanese left when he went to tour Cuba and Puerto Rico when he was just a young lad. He knew that part of Spain very well, and he wanted to evoke it in this piece. You get the hustle and bustle of a seaport. And if you want to evoke hustle and bustle, what uh, Spanish dance rhythm will you choose? Well, you might choose the zapateado. Lesson 18. Zapateado para bailar. That has a hustle and bustle kind of rhythm to it. It's in a very fast compound meter. And that's exactly what he's done here. And it's interesting, too, because Albanius developed a whole repertoire of ways to evoke the guitar on the piano. It had different ways of evoking rasgeo, of strumming the strings. Here, these little punctuations. suggesting the vigorous strumming of the strings along with the movements of the melody and the dance. It's, it's an amazing evocation, but this is exactly the sort of piece that I thought, no way, Jose, this isn't going to happen. There's, there are just too many notes here. You couldn't possibly do it. But Javier is such a phenomenal guitarist that, yep, he did it. <laughs> So here's Spanish guitarist Javier Riba playing his transcription of El Puerto from Iberia by Isaac Albeniz.
I thought we could listen to El Puerto as an example of how musicologists can be wrong and guitarists may well have the last laugh. <laughs> and so if anybody wants to consult these, they can just go to Trito's website. That's all you have to do. And uh, you can order the stuff there. Tell them Walter sent you. Trito editions can be found on the web at trito.es. Albinus is uh, perhaps his most famous composition is frequently called Asturias or Leyenda. These are actually misnomers. <laughs> he never wrote a piece by the, either of those names. What happened was this, that in the early 1890s he composed a set of pieces called Cantos de España or Chant España, Songs of Spain. And the very first work in that famous collection of wonderful pieces is called Preludio. It's the prelude. And that is the proper name of that work. It actually has only one name. It only appears once in his entire output as the prelude to the Songs of Spain, the Cantos de España. What happened, though, is that he had earlier in the 1880s, when he was still in Madrid, he had begun work on a collection of pieces that he called the Suite Española, or the Spanish Suite. And he had proposed to his publisher to submit a collection of pieces with various titles, but he only completed four of those pieces, Sevilla, Granada, Cuba, and Catalonia, I believe. He didn't complete the other pieces, just the titles. Later on, publishers wanting to complete this suite, and they could do this in those days, they went through and raided his other compositions for plausible pieces that they could press into service to complete this suite. And this was in 1911 after Albanith had died, said, well, you know what, we need to finish out a suite. Now, he said here he was going to compose a piece called Asturias Leyenda. Hmm, okay, here's this piece, Preludio. So let's take that and put it in the suite Española and call it Asturias Leyenda. And that's exactly what they did. And from that time forward, it's been known as Asturias Leyenda, although anybody who's ever heard Asturian folklore knows that this has nothing to do. I've heard people explain it this way. Well, the Asturias is a mountainous, rugged region in the north, and you can hear the suggestions of this rugged, mountainous region and the rhythms of the piece. Oh, baloney, that's just a crock of nonsense. Andalusian flamenco, and has nothing whatsoever to do with the north of Spain. Now, why didn't Albanith make that clear? He called it a prelude. Well, this is the romantic imagination. He, he, at that time, he realized anyone listening to this would recognize that it was inspired by Andalusian folklore. There was no possibility of confusing this with something from Asturias or Catalonia or from uh, Galicia or the País Vasco from the Basque Country. He knew all these various types of folklore, and at other times he would evoke the Tzortzico or the Sardana or some other type of northern folklore, but this clearly is a piece inspired by southern folklore, by flamenco. And uh, so I think that if, if a person wants to show that they have given this some thought, they should program it as the prelude. Forget the Asturias Leyenda thing, which is very confusing. It's not a legend and it has nothing to do with Asturias. That's a, a title without a piece. <laughs>
anybody who plays flamenco can readily adapt this to the Bolerias Compas if you want to. And I suggest in my book that it's very similar. The hemiola meter and the rhythms are very similar to the Buleria. Is it a Buleria per se? No, but it, to me it's, it's clearly inspired um, by that particular Paolo. And it's interesting because after I published this book, and then it came out in Spanish translation, I got a very nice letter from the professor of guitar at the Paris Conservatory. I named Rafael Andia, and he wrote to me saying, I've really enjoyed your book, and I so much appreciated the fact that you cited the influence of the Buleria Compass, or meter, on so-called Leyenda. He said, I've had a running argument for someone for years with someone here in Paris who doesn't think this is a kind of Buleria, and I think that it is. I'm so happy that you've backed me up, and now you, without any prompting, have also confirmed that they bear a strong similarity to one another, not just in terms of the meter and the rhythm, but also the modality. It's in this sort of uh, Andalusian mode, or the so-called E-mode, the kind of modified Phrygian mode that we associate with so much flamenco. It's not strictly speaking the Phrygian mode. The Phrygian mode is starting on E and the white keys of the piano and going up to E or down to E. Uh, of course, the Andalusian mode throws in that uh, G-sharp. That augmented second interval between G-sharp and F, and that becomes uh, very characteristic of any evocation of southern Spain. Bizet really goes to town with it in Carmen's fate motive in the opera. La da da di dum. In that case, I think it's between C-sharp and B-flat, but it's the same thing. It marks it immediately as something Andalusian and, of course, gypsy. There's all of that going on, and it's clearly inspired by flamenco. The thing about it is that Rafael Andia had read my book, and I didn't simply remark on the fact that this has a, a very flamenco-like uh, character to it and has nothing to do with the Asturias in the north. The other thing is that I suggested the guitarists go back to the original music and note that Albanith resorts to what I call a monorhythm. That's the only rhythm in the A section. This is basically a da capo form, A, B, and then a repetition of the A section with a short coda at the end. Albanith liked that kind of simple part form. What's interesting is that the rhythm doesn't change ever. Whereas in the guitar transcription, in order to make it more idiomatic, one gets these triplet figurations. But what I pointed out was that those are not what Albanith originally intended, and they make it difficult to maintain the rhythm and then have those occasional outburst punctuation chords simulate strumming. You go... Well, the piano, there's no break there. You hit the chord and then you keep going. With the but with the guitar, you go from. And then there's a slight pause there. I suggest that the guitarists go back and try this 
using the original rhythm, not inserting triplets or anything else, just sticking to the original monorhythm and eliminating that slight uh, gap between the, the chord and the plucking of the strings. I mean, even the figuration that Albanith uses, alternating a bass note with a note in the middle register, simulates the technique on the guitar of alternating the thumb with the index finger. He clearly, he had traveled extensively in the South, he loved flamenco, and he played the guitar a little bit himself. He was obviously evoking not only the guitar, but also the taconeo, the heel work of the dancer, and perhaps even the castanets, and the jaleo, you know, the shouting of ole and other things. So, in order to get into the spirit of that, one could go back and transcribe it with the original rhythm, and without all those triplets and other fussy figurations. And this is what <laughs> Raphael, he accepted the challenge, and this is exactly what he did. I don't know anyone else who has, has done this, and I think it creates a striking effect, which is probably closer to what Albanese originally intended, although he was familiar with the guitar transcriptions of Tarrega and uh, of Yobet, and he liked them very much. Nonetheless, I think that what Raphael has done here is important, and that is that he's gone back to the original. This is my message to guitarists is treat the music of Albanith and uh, Granados as if it had been composed in the 16th or the 15th century. It's early music now, and you need to go back to the original edition and look at it and forget Tarrega and Segovia and the rest of them and make your own transcriptions. Maybe you'll come up with the same solutions others have. Fine. But at least you'll be informed about what you're doing. Read up on Albanus, read up on the genesis of these works when they were published, their musical character. Of course, I'm plugging my own book here. I try to approach this music on its own terms rather than, I must say, rather lazily, and I say that having done the same thing myself for so many years, rather lazily depending on Segovia or some other great artist to make these decisions for you. You're not going to stand out from the crowd that way. And I think that given how many really terrific guitarists there are now, one has to establish an independent identity, break away from the herd, so to speak. I remember years ago, uh, someone was playing the famous uh, Fantasia by Mudara, which imitates the, the harp. This is a very famous piece. and. This guitarist was playing it pretty much in a conventional way, but I had looked at the tablature and I said, you know, those passages you're playing as chords, as arpeggios, sound really cool because of the dissonances, but they're actually scale passages. Those aren't chords. If you look at the original tablature, you'll see that those are redobles, not arpeggios. And then this guitarist said to me, yeah, but I'm playing this for a competition and I think they want to hear it the way Williams plays it. And I mean, I couldn't argue with that. But why don't they just bring John Williams in to play it then? If you're going to make yourself into a clone of someone else, what's what's the point of this anyway? There is no point. Why not go back to the tablature, look at the way it was originally written, and break away from the herd and be somebody different? You know, establish your own musical personality rather than depending on the editions and interpretations of others. Uh, you be the interpreter. You be the editor. You be the, the scholar here and uh, show us something we haven't seen before, not only with the early music repertoire, but as I say, with this uh, romantic repertoire as well. Approach it as if it were early music, because frankly, this is the year 2012, almost 2013. <laughs> By now, it, it pretty much is early music. Make your own informed musical choices and be different. Now, that would be my advice as a musicologist and a mediocre guitarist. 
you're not going to play it better than Williams or Romero or someone else. So your only hope is to play it differently. And this is where musicologists have something to offer. Uh, when we're not putting people to sleep, we're actually mining information that may be of use to somebody. The last segment of the show today deals with Walter's suggestion to explore Spanish light opera called Zarzuela, as he believes there are a lot of undiscovered gems that have the potential to become new additions to the Spanish classical guitar repertoire. I'm going to preface that with a piece we've already incorporated from Zarzuela, El Baile de Luis Alonso, from the Zarzuela titled La Boda de Luis Alonso, composed by Jerónimo Jiménez. This recording is the L.A. Guitar Quartet playing this piece as an homage to the Romeros on their Guitar Heroes CD. Thank you. 
talk about the undiscovered country. Let's talk about possibilities for unearthing new pieces that have not been transcribed or frequently played before. What I'd like to suggest at some point is the guitarists explore the sarsuela. There are all kinds of possibilities there for transcription. The Romeros have blazed a trail, but there are many other possibilities. Well, to give you uh, one statistic, between 1850 and 1950, about 10,000 sarsuelas were composed. Uh, I've calculated it out to one every 88 hours for a century. <laughs> and so you can just imagine how much gorgeous music is to be found in that enormous repertoire. And um, certainly a lot of it is transcribable. In Castilian Spanish, of course, it's pronounced zarzuela. You lisp the Z's but almost nowhere else in the Spanish-speaking world are the Z's lisped, and there are Latin American sarsuelas, and the sarsuela repertoire is very popular in Latin America, and so it's perfectly legitimate to say sarsuela, which is generally easier for us to pronounce anyway, and that's how I'll do that here, although when one is in Madrid, then one says zarzuela. In any event, this is a form, a kind of musical theater that was born in the middle of the 17th century, and what distinguishes Sarsuela from opera is that Sarsuela alternates spoken dialogue with musical numbers, so in that respect it's much more like a musical or an operetta. The other characteristic of Sarsuela, really from its very beginnings in the 1650s, is the use of numbers based on Spanish folklore, particularly dances like the Seguidillas and later the Fandango and even the Jota. These are staples of the Sarsuela repertoire. Terrific composers, Chueca, Chapi, Breton, names generally not well known outside of Spain, but names equivalent to, uh, oh, let's say Sondheim and Bernstein and Hammerstein and the various composers of the Broadway musical. And in the 20th century, people like Serrano Vives, Amadeo Vives, was one of the greatest of the Sarsuela composers, and Toroba. Now, Moreno Toroba is well known to guitarists because of the music that he wrote for solo guitar. His real claim to fame is on the stage as a composer of Sarsuelas. His Luisa Fernanda, for instance, which appeared in Madrid in 1932, is one of the most popular and successful Sarsuelas of all time and has been performed, uh, produced at least uh, 15,000 times since its premiere. Terrific work, but it wasn't necessarily his favorite work. He didn't necessarily consider Luisa Fernanda to be his best sarsuela. There were a couple of others he, he esteemed more highly. One was uh, Monte Carmelo and the other La Chulapona. They feature not only wonderful aria-type numbers, not only wonderful songs, but terrific dance numbers. <laughs> And these dances are very frequently based on Spanish folklore. So when the settings are in southern Spain or maybe Madrid, you'll get evocations of flamenco. But, uh, for instance, another one of his uh, successful sarsuelas, a wonderful work, delightful composition, is called Chuanon. It's uh, set in Asturias, so we have evocations of Asturian folklore. In fact, I will say this. Uh, this is a point that I'm going to be making more frequently as time goes on, and that is that if you want to play the music of Moreno Toroba, you really need to become familiar with the sarsuela. And remember, 
years ago when I was studying in Germany, my teacher was a lutenist, and I was studying Bach interpretation with him on the guitar. But he said, if you want to understand the music of Bach, you have to become familiar with the cantatas, which of course are incredible. But if you want to understand Bach's style, his character as a musician and a composer, you just have to know those cantatas. And I think the same is true for Trova. If you want to understand his guitar music, you really should listen to those sarsuelas. And it's not a matter of should, I don't even like that word. The music is so delicious, it's so delightful that who wouldn't want to listen to this? I, I can't get enough of sarsuela now. And then you move from Trova to Libes and Chueca and Chapi and Breton. Roba was a master melodist. Melodies just came from his inner being seemingly without effort. For instance, Luisa Fernanda, his most famous and most beloved sarsuela, he composed in three weeks. Musical inspiration just flowed from him. There's that famous story of Mozart where he said, I compose the way a sow pisses, you know, just effortlessly. The lyricism of the guitar pieces certainly derives from the lyricism of the stage works, but there's one other and that is that both the stage works and the guitar pieces depend a lot on Spanish folklore. Sevillana, he would return to again and again. He loved these triple meter dances with their lively rhythms. It's the Sevillana, Seguidilla, Fandango. You can just hear the castanets. The other thing is a love of uh, dramatic suggestion. For instance, most of the guitar pieces refer to something almost like a stage setting, the, the gates of Madrid, you know, the Las Puertas, Castillos de España, the castles of Spain. References to trees or castles or arches or something, you know, there's always some sort of dramatic backdrop and, and that also reminds me of his sarsuelas. One of his most famous numbers is the mazurka from Luisa Fernanda, the mazurka de las sombrías. It's the mazurka of the parasols, and it's an incredible piece. Uh, that's very famous. There are lots of tunes in La Chulapona and Luisa Fernanda. But the neat thing in La Chulapona is that there's a, in the second act, there's a cafe scene. The cafe features uh, flamenco artists. So there's a series of flamenco numbers, Petinera, and I think there's a Buleria, and there's sorts of numbers I think that guitarists could exploit. So before I play you a couple songs from Torroba's Sarsuelas, let me just say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf, and it's been my pleasure to introduce you to the words and wisdom of Dr. Walter Aaron Clark. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. Hey, don't forget to check out the CSU Summer Arts Festival and GFA in Kentucky, both coming up this summer. Also, don't forget to help All Strings Considered move up in the world by rating on iTunes, 
liking on Facebook, or following on Twitter at All Strings. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with La Mazurca de las Sombrillas from Luisa Fernanda from an album titled Viva la Zarzuela featuring Maria Bayo, Placido Domingo, and the Symphony Orchestra of Tenerife. And then you'll hear that cafe scene Walter was talking about from La Chulapona. I found that on an album with the same name, Chulapona, being played by the Gran Orquesta Sinfónica de España and the Chamber Choir of Orfeón Donostiarra. Until next time, enjoy! I'm the founder and director of the Center for Iberian and Latin American Music at the University of California, Riverside, where we offer bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in musicology and ethnomusicology. So if there are any guitarists listening who uh, think that, hey, I'd sort of like to look into a career in musicology writing about Spanish or Latin American music from a guitarist perspective, please um, come on out, uh, talk with me. What we're about there is making people's dreams come true. Thanks very much for inviting me, and uh, congratulations on what you're doing. I think it's terrific. (laughs) All strings considered.
no desafíes, mujer, porque tú sabes que yo no me doblego por nada. Los que mis amores alumbrarán, 